Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, since I've followed, followed an American, I expect the same level of feedback. Um, I'm, I'm South African, and we're, we're, we are different, but, but I, I would appreciate that. It'll be a real encouragement to me this morning. So it's really good to be with you all. Um, good morning to those in the room. Good morning to Battersea uh, uh, in your site when you watch this in a few minutes' time, and to those online, whether you're in Brighton. Is it Brighton and Hove or Brighton then Hove? Brighton and Hove, or even Hong Kong, who knows? But we, um, I'm so glad to be with all of you this morning and to be sharing. I get the, the privilege of working on this team at V61 uh, as the discipleship overseer. And I also have the privilege this morning of launching our new series on the Exodus, which, um, which, I, which I absolutely love. So I'm going to need all the time that I can get this morning. It's 40 chapters. I'm not doing it... I'm not doing it all in one go. We have four Sundays that we're going to use to try and get through this book as best as we can. Um, so I'm going to try and introduce that, uh, get us going, and then we've got three exciting further sermons coming up to dig deeper. You're not going to want to miss a single one of these, so make sure that you, that you get here and you stay here and you enjoy it as much as you can. So, um, so don't leave, basically. Uh, I'm going to jump in right away, if I can, with, with a question. Here is my question. Imagine someone came into this room or into your room in a non-threatening way and took your Bible and tore out half of your Bible, tore out the first part of your Bible. How would you feel about that? They had legal and they had spiritual authority to do that. What, what would that make you feel? Would you feel like, mm, well, I only really read the Gospels anyway, so it's fine I only ever really uh, read the New Testament, so it's fine. I wouldn't matter too much. Or would you feel a real sense of, I've lost something of God's word? What, what would you feel out of interest? How many of us in practice only have half a Bible? How many of us in practice only really have half a Bible? We dip into the Psalms when feeling a bit sad or we need a bit of encouragement. But, uh, but apart from that, we pretty much stay in what we call the New Testament. I want to say that actually this is what's called the Marcionite heresy from 144 AD. So this has been going on for a long time. This, and, and I'm not trying to be humorous here. It's, it's interesting to think, though, that this idea that we can separate the First Testament from the Second Testament has been going on for a long time. And the church called it a heresy in 144 AD when a person called Marcion said that we should be doing this because the God of the Old Testament... It's full of judgment. It's full of all sorts of nasty things we want nothing to do with. But then, because he knew in the 20th and 21st century that we'd come to value love so much as a culture, he underwent an extreme makeover and became really concerned with love. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love and a God of forgiveness and a God of compassion. And so this idea came into the church as early as the 2nd century AD that we need to separate these two parts of the Bible out because ultimately the two gods that it describes, are separate. They're not the same God. 
So in fact, I actually think when we're reading our Bibles and we're coming to this incredible gift that God has given us, God's own self-disclosure uh, in, in book form, when we're coming to it, it's actually unhelpful to refer to that first part as the Old Testament because it comes with this idea of it's old and therefore no longer useful or valuable. It's, it's not the most helpful way to think about this part of Scripture. I actually think it's better to refer to it as the First Testament or the Jewish Bible or the Hebrew Bible. And so I'm actually I'm going to be calling it that from, from now on, from the full rest of this talk. And if I slip up by calling it the Old Testament from time to time, forgive me, it's... Um, it's really ingrained in me. But calling it the Old Testament, right, has this connotation of old to be thrown away, to be replaced. It's far too easy for Christians to consider the First Testament largely irrelevant to our lives. It's laws about selfishness and shellfish. Try and say that fast um, <laughs> five times. Selfishness and shellfish. Archaic rituals, animal sacrifices, rules, 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 right? All about rules. And none of us like to wake up in the morning and read about rules. We get enough of them on the road or on the train or on the bus or whatever it may be. No more rules is better. But this is not how Jewish people understood their own texts and their own scriptures. In fact, the Psalms repeatedly consider God's instructions delightful. They're sweeter than honey, David says in Psalm 19. Rules don't necessarily feel sweeter than honey, do they? But that's, that's because they didn't understand these as blank abstractions just to be applied in a legal sense. These were rules for life, to use another phrase. They were, they were, they were freedom-giving principles from God for life to flourish. How did Jesus view the Scriptures? Well, Jesus, if we remember correctly, was a first-century Palestinian Jew. He would have seen them in the same way as his contemporaries would have seen the scriptures. He saw it as his mission to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to get rid of them. I actually want to read this for you. It's from Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Not to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill. It's important that we treat the Jewish scriptures, that first testament, the way that Jesus did, as a central part of the story, not a separate story. Jesus came to fulfill what had come earlier, not to dismiss it. So if you're wondering how that connects to what I'm about to say on this series, or why are we doing a series on Exodus, well, these are some of the reasons. We want to start to love, feel comfortable in, to cherish, and even to enjoy the earlier part of our Bible as a community. To turn there and not have our first thought be, oh no, but to be, this is God's story. This is God's story. This is God's word to me. This is where he's at work, to see its story as our story. So there's three ways to make the most of this series that we're about to do, and I want to lay those out. And then I want to jump into, I, I don't know what's funny, but, <laughs> sorry, um, I tried to find it, but I couldn't find, find it. Um, so three ways to make the most of the series, and you can kind of view them as like three levels, not in the sense of if you do three, you're the most important and, and the best, but whatever you feel God highlighting to you or you have capacity for, right? So three different ways. First, come every week. Just get you. You're going to get the whole sweep of Exodus 
only if you are here um, and you're present for each of the talks. And, and each of the preachers has worked really hard uh, to make sure we get a solid diet of Exodus Bible in us. So come every week uh, to get the full exposure and bring a Bible. Bring a Bible with you. We're going to be camping in the text of Exodus. We're going to be reading from it. Uh, I encourage you, as Phil said a few weeks ago, to scribble, to highlight, to underline, to do whatever you need to do to get it in you, but bring a Bible uh, that'll, that'll help you. And of course, we're going to continue these uh, um, analyzing of Exodus in life groups, so don't miss those either. Second, read Exodus this month in February. I don't know what Bible plan you're on right now. Maybe it's the kind of Bible in three months or Bible in a year or whatever you can do. But uh, can I encourage you not to pause that necessarily, but if you can, to, to come with this journey in February by reading Exodus um, from start to finish over the course of the month. And then uh, lastly, finally, if you have time and you can already do those first two things, there is a great book that is going to be a great companion to you as you're reading the Exodus story, which is a book written by Carmen Joy Imes. She's an Old Testament Exodus scholar and professor, and she's written a book called Bearing God's Name. I highly encourage you to have a look, if you have time, uh, as that final way to engage in the series. Does that sound okay? So three ways. Uh, pick one, pick two, pick all three. Up to you. But uh, I think that'll help you to get the most of this. I want to dive in, but before I do, let me pray and ask God to, to speak through his word this morning. Father, we thank you for time. We thank you for your word, which is alive and active. And we ask that as we open up this text, this incredible book, this history of your work in the world through your people, that we would be touched by your presence this morning. Lord, we thank you that this book shows us a God who is present in his world. And we ask that you would presence yourself here and that we would be present to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, are you with me still here? Yeah, good, 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 good. American feedback is still here. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is um, I want to basically, first, very briefly, try and pitch reading the Bible as a story, uh, an approach to reading the Scriptures. And the second thing I want to do is I want to give a brief overview of Exodus as a book so that we get the, the context and the picture. And then I want to lastly land on those opening chapters where we see God revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush, which is the self-revelation or self-revealing of God. So quick uh, plug for reading the Bible as a story, overview of Exodus, and then landing in the God who reveals himself. So firstly, reading the Bible as a story. I don't know if you know, but there's lots of different helpful ways to read the Bible. And oftentimes it depends on which part of the Bible you're reading. Some parts of the Bible are history. Some parts of the Bible are wisdom literature. Some parts of the Bible are story. And sometimes, obviously, there's a combination of, of some of those. But it's helpful to read the Bible as a story, one big story of God at work in creation and redemption, a big story of God at work in creation and redemption, and try to fit all the different parts of the Bible that you read into this bigger story of God. So don't, don't misunderstand me when I say story. Uh, some would say, uh, especially of the early books of the Bible, that this is just made-up legend, an epic tale, specifically questioning the fact of Moses' existence or the plagues 
or the crossing of the Red Sea, just that, that can't have happened. That takes some kind of miraculous intervention, and we, we don't believe in that as a post-Enlightenment society. This stuff is, is nice for telling your children at bedtime or maybe nice to read for encouragement, but true, no ways. So when I'm saying story, I'm not talking about something that is untrue or just has entertainment value. I'm talking about a true retelling of events. And if you're interested in the historicity of Exodus, I don't have nearly enough time to get into that as much as I would love to. So I'm going to put up a, a screenshot of a web of a podcast that is incredibly helpful at looking at the, the historical evidence for, for Moses and the Israelites at the time of the 13th century BC. It's not as dry as it sounds, I promise. It's actually really, really interesting. It's by John Dixon, and his podcast is, is called Undeception. So have a look if that is something you're interested in. If not, don't worry. We can move on. So story by story, I don't mean something that has just pure fictional entertainment value or is useful for theological purposes, but I'm talking about something that is a true retelling of events that have occurred. So the opening five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, lay the foundation for the events that are to follow. If we want to understand the whole story, you don't just jump in in Act 3. You don't just jump in in Act 2. You go right to the beginning to get the context of what, for what comes next. You start at the beginning and let the story unfold. Genesis, Exodus, Pentateuch, first five books, lay the foundation. They are the first act, so to speak, in the story of God. And we need to go there to read rightly. I wish, we come to the second point, overview of Exodus, I wish I could give you an outline of the whole Pentateuch. Um, as you can tell, I love this stuff. But I'm not going to do that to you uh, because we just don't have enough time. And I'm hoping that Phil and the rest of the preachers are going to pick up some of what I, I, I miss out. So I'm not going to do that. But let's start here. Let's start at the beginning of Exodus. Exodus itself picks up exactly from where Genesis leaves off. So if you remember the story of Genesis, really the overview is that it starts with generation in chapters 1 and 2, the creation story, to degeneration, the fall, disobeying God, setting ourselves up as our own gods and lords of our lives, and then goes in the third part to regeneration, the hints of God redeeming his story and his people starts then. That's how we move through Genesis, and we get to the end of Genesis, and we have Joseph having settled in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh promoting Joseph and Joseph's family moving across, all 70 of them are now living in Egypt. And we get to the end of Genesis, Joseph has died, and it says all that generation of Joseph died as well. And that's where Exodus starts, this new generation after Joseph. So here we go. Exodus picks up from here. There's two parts. Uh, I hope you're not minding all these little graphs. It just helps me. It's hoping it helps you. The Exodus movement, we have two parts to Exodus. Starts with Exodus from Egypt in the first 18 chapters uh, of the book. And then we move to the covenant at Sinai. God with the, on the mountain, his presence coming down, the tablets, the temple, all of that stuff happens in the second half of the book. So that's how we can divide it up. So we read in chapter 1, verse 7. We're finally getting to the text here. We read in chapter 1, verse 7 of Exodus. The Israelites 
were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So what we have here is an allusion to the promise to Abraham in Genesis. Whenever you see multiply, grow, increase in number, you need to think promise of God to Abraham to protect him, to move the story of redemption forward. We go back to Genesis 1 where it said, God says the first creation mandate to humanity is be fruitful and multiply. His promise to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis is I will make you fruitful and increase in number as a sign of God's faithfulness. So here at the beginning of Exodus, we're seeing God's faithfulness to his promise. The 70 that came into Egypt have increased and multiplied. We're seeing that original creation mandate of God coming to fruition. God's plan seems to be working. But this multiplication, this favor that is on the people of God attracts opposition, which is where we start to see Pharaoh enter the picture. I'm going to briefly summarize these events because I'm hoping you're going to read uh, this story this week uh, in your own time. But what we see when Pharaoh enters the picture to undermine this favor and this multiplication of the people of God is we see a progression of evil and abuse start to take place, of oppression start to take place. It starts, um, it says that it starts with the Pharaoh not knowing Joseph. A Pharaoh arose who knew Joseph not. That's the King James Version. It just sounds so much better. Who knew not Joseph He was threatened by their numbers and puts them to hard labor. But the more that they were oppressed, the more that they grew, we see in the first chapter of Exodus. The result of their continued multiplication and favor is enslavement. And finally, the end process of this oppression moves from enslavement to the killing of firstborn children. But one boy, Moses, is spared this and hidden from the infanticidal law. And to preserve his life, his mother... His faithful mother makes a basket for him. And imagine the trauma of this moment. All the babies around are being killed and put to death. And you are so desperate to preserve the life of your child that you have to make a basket and cover it with pitch and send it out into the water of the Nile towards Pharaoh's house, hoping that Pharaoh, for some reason, who knows why, will be kind enough to spare your child. Imagine the trauma of that moment, the start of this young life, and yet he's sent out and miraculously he survives. He's taken in by Pharaoh's daughter and grows into adulthood. Forty years go by. And nothing much changes in the story of the harsh treatment of Israel in those 40 years. They wait and they wait and they wait until one day, Moses, at 40 years of age, takes action. And it's what God does through Moses that takes center stage for the next 40 chapters of Exodus. So this small, young, vulnerable life that is preserved by the faithfulness of a mother is the life that God will use for the next 40 plus years of his life. Longer, I think he lives till about 120, according to scripture. The next 80 years of his life to deliver the Israelites from Egypt and to get them to the very step of the promised land. 
we do not have enough time to go through each chapter of those 40 chapters. So what we're going to do is in just four weeks, we're going to look at four of the major themes in Exodus, the four big themes that we feel highlighted from this book. Revelation, liberation, redemption, and formation. Revelation, I'm going to talk about in a moment at the bottom, so I'm not going to say too much about that now. But liberation, uh, what we see starting to happen, I'm just going to give you a brief overview. We're going to touch on these in the weeks to come. When we're talking about liberation, we realize that the seemingly private and individual sin of Adam and Eve in Eden has slowly seeped into the systems of society by the time of Exodus. What seemed to be private and individual has now been worked its way into the very systems of the way the world runs. This has been called structural sin. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but structural sin is really personal sin writ large. It's personal sins that have become systemic, systematized, brought into the structures of society, which makes perfect sense. If we collectively sin enough as individuals, that's going to become a way of life in society. That's what has happened. And Exodus has been the go-to book for many oppressed individuals and groups in history. That's where they have gone. And it's known as liberation theology. But why this book? Why do they go to Exodus, those who feel oppressed, marginalized, alienated, isolated? Because in Exodus, it's God who takes note of the suffering and God who takes action to liberate the suffering and enslaved. And what that means is that it's never God's intention that any would be oppressed or enslaved or suffer in this way. God never endorses the domination of one group by another ever. And we're going to see that in this book. God liberates his people from slavery and from oppression. That's the kind of God we are talking about. Redemption. Redemption is the how of liberation. It happens in an unexpected way through redemption by the blood of the Lamb. That's how God will liberate his people. He's going to redeem them by the unblemished Lamb. And he's going to pass over which in Hebrew is the word Pesach, and actually better translated as covering or protection. God is going to protect from death all those covered by the blood of the Lamb, which of course points us straight to Jesus, right? The very moment of Jesus' death is the Passover weekend. He chooses that moment to best interpret what his death and resurrection will mean. It'll be a covering. It'll be a protection from death itself, and it's going to happen by the blood of the Lamb. He is our Passover Lamb. Excited to get into that one in week three. Lastly, formation, and then we're going to come in for a land. Landing. Formation. God leads his people out of Egypt through the wilderness to the mountain of God. And at the mountain of God, he forms a people for himself and prescribes ways for worship and holy living. Ultimately, what this is about is about forming a people who are to bear the name of God in and to the world. A people who bear the name of God in and to for the world. So there we have it. Revelation, redemption, uh, liberation, redemption, and formation. That's, those are the four big themes that we 
are going to explore together. I hope, hope that whistle-stop tour was um, not too overwhelming. And so let me, let me try and bring this together as we finish this morning. As we read Exodus, we need to ask, why is this happening? What is God's purpose in acting in this way? Why is he doing this? If Exodus were just about leaving Egypt, the book could have ended in chapter 15, because that's when they leave. That's when they go through the Red Sea and they sing the song. Miriam leads the whole of Israel in a song. That's where it could have ended, but it doesn't. Why? Because more than slavery versus freedom, this is about the identity and character of the master Israel will serve once they are free. After they leave Egypt, slowly God draws trust from Israel and trust from us as we read the story of Israel, as we encounter his character and nature in what he does, in the promises he makes and in the promises that he fulfills. God has a goal for the Exodus. And as one Old Testament scholar, uh, Victor Hamilton, he writes this, and I'm, I'm going to read this, and we're going to come into thinking about Moses' encounter with God. Victor Hamilton writes this, Exodus begins by briefly referring to Jacob's going down to Egypt and ends by referring to the Lord's coming down from the mountaintop to dwell among his people. The God who has come down in Exodus 3.8 to rescue his people is the God who in Exodus 40 comes down to remain with his people. It is a coming down that shifts in emphasis from deliverance to dwelling, from saving to staying, from deliverance to dwelling, from saving to staying. See, God's long-term goal has always been to dwell with a people, to make his home in the midst of a people. That is God's long-range goal. That's his goal in the Exodus, and we see it even more specifically pronounced in the person of Jesus, who's called the, the place where God dwells. He is the tabernacle, God dwelling in our midst. So this is the goal of Exodus that we have to keep in mind. Deliverance to dwelling, saving to staying. So we come to this last, this last part um, that I want to share with us this morning. Briefly, I want to say this. That God is a God who reveals himself to his people. And we see that in the moment of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Moses has been tending sheep for 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. So he leaves Egypt at 40 he arrives in Midian, and he tends sheep there as a shepherd for another 40 years. And when he's 80 years old, he's walking in the wilderness of Midian, and he notices a burning bush. He thinks to himself, I must look at what this is. In verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. Verse 4 goes on to say, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Moses is doing his daily work. He's doing his daily shepherding. He's not fasting. He's not praying. He's not in some temple somewhere. He's doing his daily work. And as he's doing his daily work, he notices something that he could either ignore 
or he could pay attention to. And as he chooses to pay attention to that in the humdrum of his daily life, God notices his noticing. And the verse says, When the Lord saw he had turned aside to see, God called to him. And it's this revealing, God revealing himself through our curiosity and our paying attention in the dailiness of life that brings about all the following steps that occur in this story. The story of redemption starts with paying attention. Paying attention to God's little movements in the day and in your life. This is not about having to be in a temple. It's not about having to be in ministry. It's not about having to be fasting or praying. Though if God calls you to do that, do it. God moves in on our lives because he wants to be known. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be with you, and he wants to be with me. He's a God who wants to be known, and we can know him by name. Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? God says, tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent you. The God who has always existed, who needs nothing else outside of himself to exist. The God who's about to do all of this incredible stuff can be known through what he does, through who he is. So I want to finish there uh, on that point because I feel like that's where God wants us to stop for today, is in the very presence of God. This God who reveals himself to us. And the question I have is, is, will we pay attention? I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. I don't know how encouraged you are, how discouraged you are, how apathetic you feel, how beaten up you feel. I'm not sure. But it takes a little moment of curiosity and paying attention for God to do great things with, in, and through us. So I just want to pause there in, in that space and, and, and let God do something. I, I don't know what God wants to do, but... I want to call the band up, and, and as they come up both here and in Battersea, um, Joel and Battersea, and John are here, Balaam, I want us to take a moment to pray and ask God to reveal himself to us uh, right now. So is, is that okay? Can we, can we stand together um, just to activate ourselves a little bit, get some blood flowing? Let's stand, and I want to pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to us. Thank you from the story of, of Moses, we see that as we, as we allow our curiosity to let us pay attention to the small movings in our lives, you reveal yourself to us. You've always been present and you are present, but it's as we pay attention that we become present to you. And so I just pray over this room right now, wherever people are, that you would come and presence yourself in their midst. And if I just want to encourage you, if you are in a place of discouragement, feeling disconnected from God, from everyone else, from everything around you, you don't need a lot to just say, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Just a slow movement of your heart towards God. He can do a lot with. So wherever you are, can I encourage you to turn aside now and look? 
Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.